At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you would, please take out the Word of God and turn in it to the Gospel of John and chapter number 15. In 1965, Bill Bright wrote a booklet called The Four Spiritual Laws. Maybe you've heard of it, maybe you haven't heard of it, but particularly I want to focus on law number one in the four spiritual laws. This is law number one. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, from my viewpoint today, that statement is one of the most understated assertions ever. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Some of you know my story. You know that when I was in mid-semester of my freshman year in college, I was a baby believer that this gentleman who was named Dean came by my 10th floor dormitory room and told me that he wanted to disciple me to develop me spiritually. And my immediate reaction was, oh my goodness, there's a fanatic loose in my room. And I avoided Dean for a very long time, but he kept pursuing me. See, why did I have that reaction? Well, part of my problem was that I believed wrongly that the Bible was a boring book. The other part of my problem is I did not believe law number one. I did not believe God loves you and has, particularly the last part of it, a wonderful plan for your life. And of course, I was wrong on both of those accounts. And over time, I learned the value of God's word, as it says in Psalm 19, that his word enlightens the eyes, his word restores the soul, his word rejoices the heart. And I also learned over time that indeed, Bruce, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He, men and women, desires to meet the deepest needs of your soul. He desires to give to you the most fruitful life possible. He desires to use you in ways that you have never imagined. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Do you believe that he wants to meet your deepest needs of the soul? Do you believe that he wants you to have the most fruitful life possible? Do you believe he wants to use you in ways that you never imagined? Well, beyond trusting in Christ as our rescuer from sin and judgment, how does that happen? And that's why we've come to John chapter 15, verses 1 to 5. I'd like to read those verses From my Bible, I invite you to follow along as I read from John 15, beginning with verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, 
so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Today we are concluding a series of messages that we have entitled, I Am, where we are unpacking who Jesus really is. And we've built this around what are called the I Am statements of Jesus, where he says, ego, a me, I am. Anytime he puts that structure together, he's making a declaration of his deity. But he doesn't just say, I am, he fills in the blanks. And we've been looking at that over the last number of weeks. We've seen Jesus say, I am the bread of life. I am the satisfier of your soul. He said, I am the light of the world. I am the illuminator of your heart. He said, I am the good shepherd. I am the caretaker of your life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the ultimate life giver. I am the door of the sheep. I am your spiritual provider and protector. And then last time we saw where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we saw there that he says, I am the unique mediator. Today we come to the final one we're going to examine, and that is where he says, I am the true vine. I am the source of spiritual vitality. Now as we come to this section of the Gospel of John, where these verses are in chapter 15, there's quite a bit of breadth to this passage. In fact, you almost feel like once you dip your toes in it, that you need to swim the length of the pool. And so we're going to have to cover a lot of information this morning. We're going to have to move quickly. So I I want you to know we're actually going to cover this morning five things. We're going to look at some background on the imagery of a vine, a grapevine is what he's speaking of. We're going to look at the secret to fullness of life. We're going to look at some needed clarifications from John 15. We're going to look at two core keys, and then we're going to look at the fruit of abiding. So hang on to your hat. Here we go. Let's begin by looking at some background on the imagery of a vine, a grapevine. And, and it has Old Testament roots to it. The nation of Israel was pictured in the Old Testament as a vine, as a grapevine. I'll give you some verses. Psalm 80, verse 8, speaking of them coming out of Egypt and then going into the promised land, says, you removed a vine from Egypt and you drove all out all the nations, and you planted it. And then in Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 7, it identifies who the vine is. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. And then Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 21, where God says to the nation, I planted you like a choice vine, one that should have been fruitful. How then did you turn against me? into a corrupt, wild vine. See, the plan of God in developing them as this grapevine was he wanted the nation to display the fruit of righteousness. But we know the history of Israel in the Old Testament, right? They tended rather to be marked by disobedience and sin and idolatry. So with that as a background, we can understand why Jesus says in verse 1 of John 15, I am a go a me, I am the true vine. I'm not like Israel. I am going to produce righteousness. 
I will display love. I will display faithfulness. When we know Jesus, we have a connection to the true vine. And really what Jesus is saying when he says, I am the true vine, he says, I'm going to be very different from the nation of Israel. Then I want your eyes to go down to verse 4. He says in verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. Now, what question is he really addressing, Jesus, here? Here's the question I think he is addressing. How can you and how can I effectively be fruitful for God's glory? He's sharing this first with the disciples, but it was designed also for you and for me. How can you and I effectively be fruitful for God's glory? And the answer is through a living, ongoing connection with Jesus. So with all of that as some background, let's look at the secret to fullness of life. And that secret is found largely in the verses that we read, verse 4 and verse 5. Now, it's important that we note two things as we we zoom in on these verses. Very important. First thing we need to note is that these words are addressed to individuals who know Jesus, to individuals who are believers who are followers of Jesus. You might remember that they're in the upper room with the disciples, and Jesus is giving them some final teaching before he heads to his arrest and cross and crucifixion. And when we come to John 15, Judas is gone. He was the one who was not a true believer and not a true follower. He disappears from the group in chapter 13 in verse 30. So all we have left are the 11 who are the true believers and the true followers of Jesus. And he emphasizes this in verse 3 when he says to them, you are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. These are the true followers, the true believers of Christ. And then he also says in verse 2, he says, every branch in me, key phrase. Most theologians believe it's a precursor to the phrase being in Christ in the epistles. So it's important that we just understand who the audience is here. It's those who know Jesus, those who are believers, those who are followers of Jesus. The other thing I want to remind you of, and we talked about this a little bit last week, is the disciples were in a mindset right at this point of anxiety and fear. Remember how Jesus had told them, I'm leaving, you can't follow me right now. Jesus had told them there would be a traitor in their midst. Jesus had told them their emotional leader, Peter, was going to deny that he even knew Christ three times. And so as we just get the feel for all this context, you can see that the disciples are in need of encouragement. They are in need of assurance. They are in need of direction from Jesus. So that's the first thing we need to observe as we move into these verses. These are instructions that are given to those who are true followers of Christ. The second thing I want you to note as we look at these verses is when it comes to effectively being fruitful for God's glory, it's not automatic. It's not an automatic thing for a follower of Jesus. 
because there are certain choices and decisions that everybody must make. Remember, there's going to be the decision to abide in him. Uh, at, at the end of verse 4, can't produce fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. In other words, there's an implication. You have a choice to make. You have decisions to make. So what's the secret to being effectively fruitful for God's glory? Well, it's found in that idea, abide in me. Uh, the verb occurs four to, or rather uh, three times in verse 4. It occurs again in verse 5, and it occurs again in verse 7, where he talks about if you abide in me. See how there's a decision and a choice to be made. The word abide in the original language is the word meno, M-E-N-O. And meno means to remain with, to continue with, to dwell with, to stay connected to. Now, I want you to understand, meno is a relationship word. He's talking to those with whom he has a relationship. And he said, it is important that you abide with me. I, I like to use the phrase, depend on me. I think it's a parallel concept that he is communicating. So when you look at chapter 15 and verse 4, when he says, abide in me, depend on me, and the idea being is you can bear fruit. Uh, verse Five, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me depends on me. And of course, he's always going to be depending on and abiding in us. He bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. You know, the illustration of marriage, I think, helps here quite a bit. Uh, when I'm often leading a marriage ceremony, I will say every marriage day something new is created. A he and a she becomes a we right? What happens on a marriage day is there is a new union. But those of you who are married understand that union is not communion. Uh, you can be a new union, but in order to be fruitful in your marriage relationship, you must keep your relationship a priority. See, being a union is the foundation, but communion is how you build on that foundation. And in very much the same way, we have our relationship with Jesus. And by the way, this is what I did not get for years and years. I was clear on the union part of it, the foundation part of it, but I didn't understand the communion part, how to build on that foundation. And this whole idea of abiding is a picture of his life at work. Now get this word, inside us, inside us. The vitality of the branches comes from the vine. You know, it just, it's almost startling, even though sometimes we know this up in our head. The living God lives inside me? Wow. First John chapter 5, verse 12, we talked about this before. He who has the Son has the life. What is this life that we have? His life is inside of us. Paul extrapolates on this in Galatians 2.20 when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I live 
now live in the flesh. I live by faith. There's an idea of dependence in the Son of God. Colossians 1 verse 29, Paul writing, he says, for this purpose I labor, striving according to his power. There's the dependence element which works mightily within me. It's his life inside of me. Then one of my favorite verses, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works where? Inside of us. His life inside of us. His life as it work inside of us. Now that's revolutionary. That explains why Jesus said in John 14, 12, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do. Not greater in degree, but greater in extent. I mean, think about it. When Jesus was present on the planet, his life was wherever he was standing. Now, when we're in union with him, His life is inside of us. His life is inside of tens of thousands of tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands all around the planet. When I go and do a weekend to remember, which I'm getting ready to do in Florida this next weekend, one of the things I do at the weekend to remember is I share a little something. I'm going to be doing it again. And it goes something like this. You know, you look around and you see young love. Oh, young love is so cool. But this is what I go on to say. While I think young young love indeed is cool, I think seasoned love is even better. And I use the illustration of Gordon and Norma Yeager. Gordon and Norma, Gordon 94, Norma 90, were married for 72 years years. And they're out driving together, and they're in a very serious car accident, and they both end up in the hospital in very, very critical condition. And Gordon at 94 and Norma at 90, married 72 years, died within minutes of one another holding hands. And wow, what a picture that is of seasoned love. But there's a little Additional point of information I want to bring out about this story. Gordon stopped breathing first, still holding hands with his bride. And the family that was gathered there noticed something. They were looking at their dad's heart monitor, and there still showed a heartbeat. And they're going like, what? How does that work? So they asked the nurse, what's going on? And they said, well, your dad's heart monitor is picking up your mom's heartbeat as they're holding hands. Men and women, that's a great picture of the way this works. You see, his pulse is actually ours. His heartbeat is inside of us. The living God is inside of a human being. And he says we need to be abiding. We need to be reliant on his life being at work inside of us. 
In other words, abiding is essential to fruitfulness, to be all that we can be. Notice again, verse 4. It says, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, which he always does, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now that's a rather startling statement to see at the end of verse five. Apart from me, you can do nothing. What does that mean? Does that mean, you know, I can't drive a car apart from him? I I can't eat apart from him? I can't teach a class apart from him? I, I can't preach a sermon apart from him? What's he mean when he says that? He's basically saying this, apart from me, you cannot be truly fruitful. Now notice, he does not say, apart from me, you're greatly handicapped when it comes to being fruitful. He doesn't say, apart from me, you are greatly disadvantaged when it comes to being fruitful. He's saying, you have total inability to be fruitful apart from me. You might have heard it said over the years, the Christian life is more than difficult. It is impossible without Christ. That's what Jesus is really saying. We need to be energized by him. What we need is a 3D response. What do I mean by that? What we need is desperate dependence daily. In order to be fruitful, in order to be all that we can be, we need desperate dependence daily. It's the same idea that Paul communicates a little different imagery in Galatians chapter 5 when he says, walk by the Spirit. Same picture of being dependent on the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit, and guess what comes out of your life? It's a word that begins with F. Fruit comes out of our life. When we walk by the Spirit, that daily, regular dependence, that's the same concept in John 15 of abiding. Now, we need to pause for a moment and make some needed clarifications here, especially as it relates to verse 2 and verse 6 that we haven't read. This is part of what I mean. You dip your toes in, and then pretty soon you feel like you have to swim the length of the pool. Look at verse 2 again. It says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Look at verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, what happens? He's thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Now, we, we, again, we have limited time today, but I, I just want us to understand something here. As interp- interpreters come to verse 2 and verse 6, they fall into three possible camps. Interpreters, number one, would say this about the branches that are mentioned in verse 2 and verse 6. They would say, these are false professors, false followers of Jesus. And they would say, what happens is when they are taken away and thrown into the fire, it's taking someone who is a false professor, a false follower, and throwing them into hell. 
Now, there are some interpreters who would understand verses two and six that way. Now, I cannot go there, primarily because of the context again. To whom is he speaking? Remember, he talks about every branch in me. He's talking about true followers. And six times in this section, he talks about bearing fruit. This is about fruitfulness and bearing fruit as a follower of Jesus, in my opinion. Second group of interpreters would say this. When you look at verse 2 and you look at verse 6 especially, it's referring to those who lose their salvation due to unfaithfulness in their life. They had it, they lose it. Now, we, we spent some time in John chapter 10 and verse 28 where it says that no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. We are secure. When you have eternal life, you have eternal life. And sometimes people say, well, you might not be able to snatch you out of his hand, but you could jump out of his hand. Listen, if, if the worst enemy can't grab you out of his hand, you're not jumping out. When we know him, we know him. When we have eternal life, we have eternal life. So the third group of interpreters would say this about verse 2 and verse 6. These refer to lessons for true followers of Jesus, lessons that they should heed. So, so let's, let's try to understand them. Let's go to verse 2 first. It's important to understand that the activity described in verse 2 is activity that would happen in a vine-growing arena early in the growing season. Very early in the growing season, two things would happen. Look at verse 2 again. It says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. The verb that is translated takes away is a verb in the original that is iro, A-I-R-O. It can mean one of two things, depending upon the context. It can mean to lift up, to take up, or it can mean to take away and remove. And by the way, it's used both ways in the Gospel of John. So what is he really trying to talk about here? What's he picturing? When he talks about every branch in me that does not bear fruit, who do you think that would be descriptive of? Think about what's going on. Think about what's going to happen when Jesus gets arrested, when Jesus gets crucified. What did the 11 do? Were they bearing a lot of fruit? Initially, no. And that's certainly true of Peter, who was swearing that he never even knew who Jesus was. Well, what happens with every branch that does not bear fruit? What would Jesus do? He was very tender with the, with the disciples, wasn't he? And what they would do if, if there was a branch that did not bear fruit, and really what would happen early on in the growing season is you'd have a branch from the vine, and it would be laying down on the ground. And one thing a vine dresser would do is he would pick it up off of the ground and prop it up. He wanted that branch to avoid mold. He wanted to give it the air to grow. He wanted it to position it so it would start to bear fruit. That's the first thing they did at the beginning of the growing season. The second thing they would do is that those vines that were already bearing fruit, they would prune so that they would bear more fruit. You ever been pruned by God? You know, almost everybody's going, yep, yep. 
See, what, what, what the vine dresser would do is he would target the weak and unwanted parts of the plant and he would prune them out so that the plant would be more healthy and more fruitful because he wanted the plant to be all that it could be. And that's what he does with us. And the pruner of the plant would have the end in sight, not just the comfort of the moment for the plant. And the same thing is true with us and God. He has the end in sight, and the end in sight is that we would be more like Christ. He's not just so concerned about the comfort of the moment, so sometimes he prunes. You see all this fits? See how it fits contextually? Let's go down to verse 6. Verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, and again, if we're talking about true followers in Christ, this is a true possibility for a follower in Christ. Whatever he's describing in verse 6 is a true possibility. If he does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Now, now understanding, I don't understand this because I studied it personally, but I've learned from people who know about it. When a vine dresser would handle vine branches, he always handled them one of three ways. At the beginning of the season, as we've said, he would take the ones on the ground, he would lift them up, set them up so that they might begin to bear fruit. Second thing he would do at the beginning of the season is he would prune away, remove the amount that was unwanted so that even though it was bearing some fruit, it could bear more fruit. The third way that a vine dresser would handle vine branches wasn't at the beginning of the season, it was at the end of the season. And if there was a branch that was not bearing fruit, it was considered to be useless and it was taken away and thrown into the fire. Say, well, Bruce, what does that mean then in verse six? Well, I'll tell you what my understanding of this is. I don't think the fire in verse six is hell. He is talking here about secure believers in Christ. I think it points perhaps to spiritual discipline. He disciplines every child of his, Hebrews chapter 12. Or perhaps more logically, it points to the judgment seat of Christ, which comes at the end of a believer's life. You can jot down the passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 to 16. Go there, look at it. Because it tells us there, it uses the imagery of a building, and it says there is already no more foundation than you can lay than is laid in Christ Jesus. He is the foundation. But how are we going to build on that with my life? What are the choices I'm going to make in my life? And he goes on to say in that 1 Corinthians 3 passage that if you build with the right materials, there's going to come the test of fire. And if your work remains you receive a reward. Not just you go to heaven, you receive reward. If your work is burned up, if it was worthless, it's just burned up, it's gone, and yet, it goes on to say at the end of that section, you will still be saved. You will still be delivered. So the idea is there's a foundation. We build on the foundation with certain materials. It'll be tested by fire, some of which will remain, which gives us reward, some of which will just be burned up. And that seems to me to be the most consistent way to understand what's going on in verse 6. In other words, he's saying, if you fail to abide, if you fail to depend, if you fail to have a 3D response of desperate dependence daily, you'll end up expending your earthly life rather than investing 
your earthly life. And that was true of me for many years. I was just expending my earthly life, not really investing my earthly life. And yet, even if we expend our earthly life, we still have eternal life. It just means we're not spiritually healthy. So then one of the the core keys, we want to be abiding, we want to be fruitful. Well, the two core keys are the first we've already looked at, and that is dependence. Desperate dependence daily. If we're going to abide, that's what it takes. And then the second key is obedience. Obedience. If we want to abide, the first core key is dependence. The second one is obedience. Look at at verse 10. Isn't this pretty straightforward? He says, if you keep my commandments, what will happen? What does it say? You will abide in my love. That's why our time in God's word is so vital. It's vital to our spiritual survival. That's why we need to be in it individually and why we spend time at Wildwood opening up the word of God and teaching the word of God. And we do it in every dimension of what we do at Wildwood because the first key is dependence, desperate dependence daily. The second key is obedience. Now, I want you to look at those two keys for a moment. Dependence and obedience. When we trip up, how many people have tripped up in the last month? Let me see some hands. I've got, I don't only have two hands for me to raise. But when we trip up, I want you to notice something. It is always due to one of those or the other or both. Every single time. When we trip up. It's either a problem with dependence or a problem with obedience or a problem with both. Well, what is the fruit of abiding? Why is he so exhorting us? Why does he want us to have a wonderful life? Well, the fruit of abiding, we're going to talk about these very quickly. Uh, the first fruit of abiding is special answers to prayer. We see that in verse 7. Second fruit of abiding are manifestations of his love. It talks about that in verse 9, verse 10, verse 12. What are the manifestations of his love? Well, part of it is the fruit of godly character that we developed, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Another manifestation of his love is the fruit of good works toward other people, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 10. Another manifestation of his love is the fruit of lives being changed, Romans chapter 1 and verse 13. Another manifestation of his love is the fruit of generous investing in eternity. What's the fruit of abiding? Special answers to prayer, manifestations of his love. How about this one? Deep joy. Anybody want to experience that in their life? Look at verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Part of the fruit of abiding is we have a deep joy that goes beyond the circumstances that we are experiencing. Not only special answers to prayer and manifestations of his love with various fruit displayed, not only deep joy, but another fruit of abiding is God is glorified. Look at verse 8. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Ultimately, he gets the honor. He's the true vine. It's his life at work inside of mine. Jesus says, I am the vine. 
you are the branches. He who abides in me, which is a daily decision we have to make, and I in him because he's always there for us. That person bears much fruit. That is his aim for every single follower of Jesus. Now, Warren Wiersbe, I think, pulls this all together. I want you to see this quote that he makes. He says, to put it another way, the better we know Jesus, the more we will love him. The more we love him, the more we will obey him. And the more we obey him, the more we will abide in him. The more we abide in him, the more fruit we will bear. And the more fruit we bear, the more we will experience life overflowing. He says it's somewhat of a spiritual chain reaction. And I really like that. First law, the four spiritual laws. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. One of the most understated assertions ever. So what should our response be? Well, the first one I would say is if you don't yet know him as your rescuer from sin and judgment, run to him as your savior. By faith, turn to Christ. He died for you, he was raised again for you, and he wants to live inside of you. And I will say this, I want you to know, he'll never disappoint you. The cool thing is that the great I am changes who I am. So if you haven't yet done done it, run to him as your savior. Secondly, I would say by way of response, depend on him as the great I am. Trust in him. Rely on him daily. And I will say this to you. You'll never regret it. Never, ever regret it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for how powerful it is. We thank you for Jesus, who is the great I am. And Lord, may we as men and women never get over the truth, so startling to me, that the living God lives inside of me when I know him. And what we're called to do is not only stand on our union with him, but to continue to develop our communion with him so that we can be all that he designed us to be. What an amazing truth it is. And we thank you about these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 